RPC Radio. Hello and welcome to Taxing Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kim and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes hostile and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you miss any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading, there is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxingmatters. As the number of strikes rise and questions of economic resource allocation push to the forefront of the national consciousness, there has been a rise in the number of people calling for either new taxes or wholesale tax reform. This has been mirrored by the increase in lobby groups such as Patriotic Millionaires UK, a lobby group of high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals who feel that they should be doing more. Of course, this is also opposed by those who call for a lowered upper tax bracket in order to stimulate economy. So today we're looking at the question of wealth tax and asking, is it worth it? I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Ben Tippett. Ben is a lecturer in economics based at the Institute of Political Economy, Governance, Finance and Accountability at the University of Greenwich and author of the excellent book, Split, Class Divides Uncovered. Ben's research focuses on knotty questions around wealth inequality, housing, debt and political economy and he has been published in The Guardian, Open Democracy and BBC World Service. Ben, welcome to Taxing Matters. Thank you very much uh, for having me, Alice. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So let's kick off. What are we talking about by wealthy? Yeah, I think it's a great question to start because it's a question we've probably been asking ourselves as a species since we've really been around and producing stuff as an economy. If we go back to Plato, Plato said the wealthiest person should really only have four times the wealth of the unwealthiest person. If we come to more modern times, 10 years ago, we had the Occupy Wall Street protest movement that really created a political slogan out of an economic wealth statistic, bringing statistics to the street, which I think has encapsulated this idea of extreme wealth and income inequality in our societies. But beyond that, you know, we're we're also fascinated about wealth. Increasingly, there's been a proliferation of HBO series about the wealthy from Succession to White Lotus. And I think there's an insatiable appetite from people about looking at the wealthy. To put my economist hat on and to try and define it, I think we need to make a distinction between wealth on the one hand and income on the other hand. So wealth, basically the way we would measure it is the net wealth is your assets and your assets can be housing, pensions, could be some form of physical assets like artwork and business assets minus your debts that you have. It's something that you own at a particular point in time and it can be passed on through generations. And that's clearly very different to income, which is a flow variable. It can be earned from going out to work, or it can be earned from actually owning wealth and receiving the kind of dividends, the capital gains and the rental income. And that's a really important distinction, because when we talk about wealth in economics, we focused a lot in the past on income. That was, in a way, an incomplete measure, really, of the control of economic resources that the individual have. Let me give you an example. I give you two people. On the one hand, we have Tim. Tim maybe earns £15,000. He works as a gardener. He's wearing kind of shabby clothes and he doesn't have a particularly nice 
a smartphone or laptop. On the other hand, you have Lizzie. Suave, she wears nice suits, she works in the city, and she's on £200,000 a year. If I ask you who of these people are better off, who are you going to say? Well, you'll probably say Lizzie, but clearly we're only looking at their income. If I then tell you Tim is actually going to inherit a large trust fund fortune of billions of pounds and Lizzie, on the other hand, has a gambling addiction and is £400,000 in debt, then clearly their economic control of resources changes. So we need to take into account wealth as well as income in order to understand the control of economic resources. So then the question really becomes, what then is the level of wealth that you need to become wealthy? This is an impossible question to answer, really. It's a bit like saying, if you play the violin, at what day can you suddenly play the violin? It's an incremental process, and we will always be putting arbitrary targets on these things. It's also a relational and a contextual issue. You could say the average wealth of somebody in the UK, which is around £300,000, that relative to the rest of the world is very wealthy. However, the average person in the UK relative to, say, a billionaire, clearly the billionaire is wealthy. The average person in the UK today is wealthy relative to even the kings and queens of the past. So these are all relational and contextual issues. When we talk about taxation, because this is a national state policy, I like to think about it in terms of what then is wealthy at the nation state level in the UK today. What level of wealth do you need in order to be wealthy today? This is arbitrary, but I do think the top 1% idea is really powerful for this because it's very easy to understand for people. It's come from a political demand. Basically, to be in the top 1%, you have to have around 3.5 million net wealth, your wealth minus your debt. So even if you have a 3.5 million home, but you have a big mortgage on it, then you wouldn't be considered part of the top 1%. That's the very start. And that goes all the way up from 3.5 million to the billionaires that you find in the Sunday Times rich list. Just to put that into perspective, if you earn the average disposable income around £32,000, and you didn't spend any of your money on consumption or anything, you know, you saved every single penny, it would take you roughly around 100 years to just get to that top 1%. So clearly, the average person in their lifetime can't make it. It's an interesting thing to focus on because it captures this idea of once you've reached that point, really, the wealth that you accumulate beyond that to some extent, is excess wealth to what you need in order to live a decent, fulfilling, humane life. And it poses the question, which I hope we discuss today, which is, could then those excess assets be redistributed and the future consumption connected to those excess assets and the power and control redistributed in a way to help tackle the social issues that we have from a crumbling public service infrastructure to tackling things like climate change? So jumping in on that point, we've got these stepped income bans. Does this not address the issue of of wealth and wealth accumulation? Like you were talking about, it takes 100 years to get to that point. And maybe as you get closer to it, more of that income is taken away in tax and redistributed to social issues. So what's the issue? I think it's a really great question. The key issue and the reason why I've introduced wealth and income is because wealth is much more unequally distributed than income. And wealth is particularly important because it generates its own income, which over time is then saved into more wealth. You can make capital gains out of your wealth. You can receive dividends. You can receive rental income, or you may even have flows of wealth in terms of inheritances. The fact that wealth generates its own wealth, the idea of increased rates of return, the rate of return to your wealth, this at the very top of the wealth distribution is the reason why wealth is so much more unequally distributed than income. 
because you get distributional literature is called a Pareto distribution. You basically get this group of people who are at the very top make so much money from their wealth that the wealth can accumulate at an increasing rate and that takes off from the rest of society. So then the question is, is the current tax system really dealing with that type of self-generating, reinforcing wealth, inequality and concentration? And I don't think it is. I think part of the reason why it's not is because a lot of the returns to wealth at the very top are basically earned in the form of unrealized capital gains. In a way, the very, very wealthiest people can organize their tax affairs in order to minimize or reduce the amount of tax that they pay in a way that ordinary people who just earn their income from going out to work can't. The third richest person in the world, Warren Buffett, really captures this well when he says he pays a lower effective tax rate than his secretary because of the fact that all of his wealth is effectively kept as an unrealized capital gains that he keeps in his company, Berkshire Hathaway, and he only takes a small dividend in order to pay for some of the small consumption goods that he has. So there's this runaway effect of wealth inequality at the top that the current income tax system isn't dealing with. In that sense, then, if we want to talk about wealth redistribution and we want to focus on that wealth at the very top, I think we have to talk about taxes on the stock of wealth. And that's where the tax rate is on just the value of the stock a 1% tax on a million pounds, let's say, you would just be taxed on the 1% of that million for that year. There's a tax on the stock of wealth, not the incomes that flow from it. there an alternative tax, which is this wealth tax and the idea of taxing wealth rather than income or inheritance or capital gains or any of those other measures that we currently have. How would this work? There's many different types of wealth taxes that we could have. When I'm talking about the tax on the stock of wealth, again, it's not an income tax. It's also not an inheritance tax, which is a tax on the transfer of wealth. Either we could have a one-off wealth tax. Some people have said due to COVID, we've seen a big increase in the wealth at the very top of the distribution. The number of billionaires during the first year of the pandemic increased by nearly a quarter. And so we could say there's been a shock, an exogenous shock to the system. We need more public funding for key resources. Let's do a one-off wealth tax. And this is what the Wealth Tax Commission came up with for their policy recommendation. Now, that is obviously different to an annual wealth tax, where the tax is implemented annually each year ad infinitum. Let's just stick for the moment with an annual wealth tax. The proposal I've thought about in one of my papers is that what we could look at then is at the very top of the distribution, how much is the rate of return? On average, how much is this wealth growing at the top? And if you look at sources like the Sunday Times Rich List, which goes from the 1980s to today, we see that the wealth at the very top is increasing by around 10% per year. To redistribute wealth then at the very, very top, and by the very top, what I mean is it could be the top 1%, it could be the top 0.1%. Let's stick for the moment with the top 0.1%. So that's people who have wealth above 16 million. Again, that's net wealth. If we tax that wealth at 10% a year, it would roughly generate around 60 billion pounds a year. And that's about 8% of total tax revenues. So this is a huge amount of revenues. That number actually also assumes 50% of the tax is going to be evaded by behavioral changes from the rich. So actually, the figure when you just plug the numbers in is more like 120 billion. 60 billion, if you put that into perspective, what could you do with that? Well, the Institute for Fiscal Studies 
say that to give public sector pay rise that is inflation matching, it would cost in the region of 18 to 20 billion, around a third of what you could raise from the kind of annual wealth tax. There's a couple of features of this that are really important to highlight. One is that this would be a tax on all assets. You wouldn't be able to exclude certain assets. It would be on your primary residency. It would be on your business assets. It would be on your financial assets. And that would include things like farmland. So yeah, it has to be broad tax base. Otherwise, what you see is people effectively buy up the assets that are excluded in order to try and evade the tax. That's the simple bare bones of how the tax would work. People make this distinction that this is an annual progressive wealth tax. That would be the term that we would use for it rather than a one-off wealth tax. And we use the term progressive to try and distinguish it. The types of wealth taxes that exist in, say, Switzerland include much more of the population, right? Not just the top 0.1%, but include most people in the population. And therefore, because they include most people, the tax rates that they impose are much lower. You sort of touched on it there about the 50% is immediately discounted because of tax evasion. And one of the common arguments that is used to rebut taxes of this type is that no one will pay it and people will seek to leave the tax jurisdiction and avoid it and structure the affairs in the way that you mentioned with your example of Warren Buffett seeking to pay less tax. So is that true? And is that in fact a reason not to explore this? I think this is a really important and powerful question that we need to be clear about and have good answers to, because all taxes have some form of behavioural responses. People respond to taxes, and it, to some extent, undermines the amount of revenues that you can generate from it. I see three key ways that wealthy people might try and avoid paying the tax. Firstly, they may fragment their wealth amongst family members. Let's say you are only taxed on wealth over 60 to 70 million, the top 0.1%. If you are, say, somebody with 40 million, what you might then do is you might fragment your wealth, give 20 million of it away to your children, and then keep the amount so that you remain under the wealth tax threshold. This type of fragmentation will undoubtedly occur. Is this a problem? On the one hand, one of the aims of the wealth tax clearly to redistribute wealth. To some extent, if then people are actually having to give up ownership of their wealth in order to not pay the tax, then clearly this is having some redistributive effect. And it becomes much harder to do this fragmentation the higher up the wealth distribution you get. If you're a billionaire or if you earn tens of billions, clearly you would have to have many, many family members in order to fragment the wealth. So at some point, it becomes hard to really use fragmentation to evade the tax. Then the second issue is about hiding your assets abroad in some kind of offshore trust fund or something. Now, this would obviously be illegal under the legislation of a new wealth tax. And this type of evasion from talking to wealthy people, to tax professionals, I think could be quite severely limited. I don't really know how much of a threat something like this would be, particularly if you had a fully functioning beneficial ownership register, which is inevitably what you would need to do in order to implement a tax like this. Also, you'd probably need to beef up slightly the resources and surveillance capabilities of HMRC. Then the third way that people might respond to the tax, and this is that people might give up their residency in order to avoid paying the tax. I think it's this point that is probably the most likely way that people are going to respond 
to the tax. And that's for a couple of reasons. Firstly, wealthy people in the top 0.1% tend to have much stronger links to other countries. Maybe they were born there, maybe they've had previous residencies there, and it's easier for them to leave the country and give up their tax residency. Recent research from Switzerland, looking at into canton regions within Switzerland, where there is a wealth tax, does show that if you basically increase the top marginal tax rate on wealth, you do have an effect where people will leave. However, this is about a quarter of the overall effect on wealth inequality. There's clearly going to be some mobility response, but it's not going to be 100%, at least taking the evidence from Switzerland. Interestingly, further research from Patriotic Millionaires, which is an organization that you raised at the very beginning of the podcast, they've actually polled this group. So the people with basically over 10 million in wealth, and they've asked whether or not they agree with a wealth tax or support a wealth tax in the region of more like one to 2% of a wealth tax. So lower than the 10%, I was saying. And 66% of those people said that they do support a wealth tax. So again, this, this also raises the question whether or not if so many of this group do support a wealth tax and giving up your residency would have some serious negative effects on your quality of life. You may not be able to see your children, your grandchildren walk the streets that you love in the UK, visit your family, your friends. It does raise the question that I'm sure there is a way of designing the tax with a given tax rate that would be effective and wouldn't lead to a complete exodus, let's say, of those that could in theory pay the tax. So you've talked a bit there about the reasons that this is supported being making this country a bit more hospitable and redistribution to public sector. What is it that a wealth tax would actually be designed to do? What would it seek to achieve? The first thing is that it's about tackling inequality by redistributing those assets that are going to be taxed. Because at some point, in order to pay the tax, probably people would have to sell the assets or at least use the incomes that are generated by those assets to not accumulate further assets or to effectively hand that over to the government. So it's either going to put a limit on wealth inequality increasing in the future, or it may even lead to a redistribution of those assets. Why does that matter? Why is that important? Firstly, I think we need to look at both the consequences and also the causes of that extreme wealth inequality at the very top. I think when it comes to causes, a lot of this inequality, and I've looked at this in research looking at the UK, the USA and France, is caused by processes in the economy that are really to do with power relations and rent extraction, and not to do with, let's say, growth and productivity. I mean, the period under which wealth inequality has been rising, which is the period from 1980 to today, has been a period of much lower GDP growth than the preceding 30 years before it from the 1940s to the 1980s. When you look at just the macro data, the period of rising inequality has been a period of declining growth. We see that decade from the 80s to today decreasing and decreasing. Now we effectively have a form of secular stagnation or stagnation 
in our economy alongside some of the largest forms of wealth distribution that we've seen. So I think there is a macro link between there. Theoretically, I think this could be caused by two things. I think on the one hand, what we see is an increasing concentration of capital across every single sector. And this concentration of capital effectively will mirror the concentration of wealth of the owners of that capital at the end of the day. And and we know from basic economics 101 that I'm sure many of your listeners have taken, these kind of concentration of capital and monopolization and monopsony power tend to be quite bad for markets. They tend to be quite bad for productivity and bad for growth, really. And so in this sense, I think the causes of wealth inequality come from a market failure. What in terms of the consequences of wealth inequality? Well, I think one of the key issues is that we have potentially political consequences and economic consequences. So politically, as the very wealthy become increasingly rich, they just have more money to influence society to match their own interests. And this could be done through the political system. It could be done through philanthropy. It could be done through the control of the media. It could be done from a variety of different ways where if you live in a highly commercialized and marketized society and you have an extreme group of people that can be able to buy any asset they want, then their power to some extent becomes more unlimited. You see this with Elon Musk and Twitter. He can effectively buy one of the most important media institutions in the world using the gains effectively that he made over the COVID period. So I think the political consequences of this can be really important. The economic consequences as well, just by the fact that we have, I think at the top, a huge amount of assets that are really not being utilized. There's further work needs to be done in this, but I do think from some of my co-authors at the University of Greenwich have shown that wealth equality or a redistribution of wealth from the top towards the rest of society can have quite a positive impact on things like business investment, which is in a way maybe counterintuitive because one might think if you tax profits or tax the accumulation of profits, it might lead to a decline in business investment. But actually, we find the opposite. And this could be driven by demand effects or driven by the fact that the assets are utilized in a more productive way. Lastly, there's this question, a moral or philosophical question of meritocracy, which is a bigger question, but we are increasingly living in a society where your life chances, where you end up in society, your ability to consume, to have a good life is effectively determined more by your unearned income from wealth than it is from going out to work. We see that in the housing market, particularly. And I think the very extreme level of that sends a message to everyone else. This is, I think, part of the reason why we're seeing a sense in Britain that there's a level of unfairness in the way that our economy has been structured. That's the first point on tackling inequality that I think the wealth tax helps to tackle. The second one is just that it generates government revenues. We know that we need to invest in increasing public services in the NHS, We know that the strikes are having a a morale-inducing effect on the countries in the sense that it's been almost a year now. And I think the effects of that on the economy, the sense of how the country's progressing is very negative. And so I would say we could use some of these revenues to pay public sector workers an inflation matching wage and to tackle the cost of living crisis, the environmental crisis. I mean, the list goes on. It would require another podcast really to discuss those things. But clearly, freeing up government finances is something we need at the moment.
You've alluded to this next question a little earlier. There have been previous proposals in the UK for a wealth tax, which were opposed in particular by farmers and by people who own historic estates. They opposed them on the basis that the tax levels would be sufficient, that these farms would be unable to continue to operate and would need to be broken up and sold off piecemeal. Same with historic estates, which would risk them falling into the hands of people who might destroy important historic monument or icon. What can we learn to make sure that the same arguments are either not able to apply or are effectively answered? Quite an interesting case study from the 1970s, 1974, quite a radical Labour government was elected and they decided to try and put forward a progressive wealth tax. In response, as you say, there was a coalition of farmers and English country home aristocratic owners who got together, organised a petition and managed to get a million people to sign this petition under the banner, defend the English country home. And the petition was to try and stop the wealth tax. At the same time, completely disconnectedly, there was a big exhibition on at the Victoria and Albert Museum about the English country home as well. It wasn't part of the campaign, but it also caught the public mood a little bit. The old civil servant Gus O'Donnell said, Whenever you have a tax change, there's somebody that loses out and they will scream very, very hard. And that's one of the big reasons why it's quite hard to have any form of tax reforms, because the winners from a tax aren't going to make as much noise as the losers. This also raises the point about a liquidity issue. As you say, one of the key problems with a world tax is you're not taxing income, you're taxing the asset. And so if someone's very asset rich, but cash poor, like farmers, the question is, are they just going to have to sell the asset in order to pay the tax? In response, particularly to the farming and the estate question, the way you deal with this is you have to have high thresholds for the tax. So the tax can only be kicked in at a very, very high number. So we looked at today, a tax that starts at around 16, 17 million pounds. If you are a farmer with that amount of land that's valued at that level, I think there is a question about whether or not the liquidity issue is one of choice or it is one of constraints. Can we say that somebody with 20 million pounds worth of assets is really liquidity constrained? To some extent, I think this issue is more important if you start to kick in the tax at like £500,000 or something like this. Based on the research that the World Tax Commission have done in some of their working papers on this, this is an issue that stands out, which is why I'm much more in favour of making sure that the threshold for the world tax is very high. Because also there's other types of people that might be asset rich and cash poor, like elderly people living in London, let's say. You don't really want to force elderly people to be kicked out of their family home to pay for a world tax, partly from a moral reason, but politically it would completely destroy the project. So I think in this sense, it has to start at a high threshold. In terms of the country estates, it's a similar issue but the redistribution or sell-off of country estates has happened over the 20th century, even without a wealth tax. Many of the aristocracy have been unable to keep their estates. I think what we need is to make sure that those estates don't fall into just property developers' hands, but are retained as English heritage sites by organisations like English Heritage and the National Trust, which is how the system is working a little bit now without the wealth tax. I think if this was properly thought through, it's something that could easily be sold and those assets could then be opened up to the British public to have picnics and cups of tea in at the weekend. So if we've got no real barriers, where to from here? 
Well, I think there are growing calls for a wealth tax. If you think about this 10 years ago, the idea of a progressive wealth tax was really considered on the very outskirts of economic debate through the work of people like Thomas Piketty, Gabriel Zuckman, economists that have really pushed this agenda. And then organisations, as you say, like Patriotic Millionaires, Tax Justice UK, organisations in the US, across the world, in Europe, people are really pushing for this. The polling shows that people are very supportive of a wealth tax in order to push it to that next level. It's a political question, but from my researcher economist hats, um, I think we do need more research on some of the questions that we've looked at today. I think we need more research on how to construct effectively beneficial ownership registers. Also research on how people respond to wealth taxes by giving up residency or by moving countries. And I think some further research on the macroeconomic impacts of wealth distribution could be very important in order to make the case for this to politicians. And these are the kind of things that I've been working on and my colleagues at the Institute for Political Economy, Governance, Finance and Accountability at Greenwich. I'd call out to anyone who's interested in collaborating on such research or these questions to reach out to me because these are the kind of things I'm going to be working on to try and push this policy forward. Because at the end of the day, I'm a researcher, not an MP, so I don't want to speculate too much on which party or which politicians or which groups are going to want to support this policy or not. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for in this week's episode. So thank you again to Ben for joining us. If you have any questions for me or for Ben, or you'd like to get in touch with him in relation to his offer to reach out or any topics you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us on taxingmatters at rbc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Original Score was composed and produced by Inciter Music, who also produced this podcast series. To hear a full, uninterrupted version of our podcast theme, go to Instagram at Inciter Music and follow the link in bio. And of course, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. If you like Taxing Matters, why not try RPC's other podcast offering, Insurance Covered, which looks at the inner workings of the insurance industry, hosted by the brilliant Peter Mansfield and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and our website. If you like this episode, please do take a moment to rate, review and subscribe and remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again shortly.